Welcome to the New North Podcast, where we investigate the unique sounds and perspectives of exploratory musicians. My name is Joe O'Connor, and I'm a member of New North's Artistic Committee, along with Andy Butler and Callum Gaffrey. New North is a platform for musicians who push boundaries in their areas of practice. This podcast is a companion to our concert series, which celebrates the amazing work of musicians and sound artists, both established and emerging, who make and present work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Head to newnorthmusic.online for information about upcoming events, links to recordings and previous concerts, and information about our Emerging Artists Commission. You can also like New North on Facebook and follow new underscore north underscore music on Instagram for regular updates about our activities, including our upcoming concert on September 21st at Brunswick Mechanics Institute. In this episode, I talked to trumpet player and electronic musician Ruben Lewis. Ruben keeps himself very busy as a freelance trumpet player and a collaborator with musicians, dancers and visual artists, as well as working with uh, a number of ensembles, um, including the Phonetic Orchestra. And he's also been very active in various roles that support the development of new work with the Australian Art Orchestra, developing uh, social media promotion, and, um, and also doing work more recently with Earshift Records, helping them to work out the next phase in their development. And, um, and this is on top of the work that he does as a, as a freelancer and a promoter of, um, of his own projects. I found this interview really interesting and really valuable because um, as artists, so many of us struggle with the questions about how do we make a career where we get you know, the most important bit, the making of the work done, but at the same time take care of uh, you know, paying bills, paying rent, all of that stuff. And I think Ruben's someone who's found this balance um, particularly successfully. And a big part of this has been uh, Ruben being very proactive and working out what he has to do and what skills he has to develop to be able to find the right balance in his life between art making and also getting by. So here's my interview with Ruben Lewis. Hi Ruben, (laughs) thanks for joining me. (laughs) Thanks for having me Joe. Uh, So we'll talk a bit today about um, your recent performance at Vales, which was uh, an excerpt from your recent solo album, The House is Empty. Um, And um, before we do that though, we might talk a little bit about how you've arrived at this point where you're making um, electroacoustic work with all sorts of um, electronics, synthesizers, um, pre-records, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, So um, it it seems to me that the the sort of more electronic stuff has been building and building and accumulating and becoming more central to what you do over recent years. But Mm. um, when I first became aware of your music, maybe almost 10 years ago now, yeah, there's double been, digits now. God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I reckon it probably would have been about 2013 or 2012. That'd be right. I moved to Melbourne in 2013. So. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I, I think I met you at. Um, yeah, you cooked a curry for Cal and I. Cal that's Cal right. That's right. In that's right. In um in uh, Fitzroy. Yes, in that, we in that house. Cooked a very nice vegan red curry and mm. blew everyone away. It was very mm. fun. So um, yeah, that would have been about 10 years ago, and at that time. Um, you know, you seem to be much more of an acoustic trumpet player. Mm. Um, so maybe talk about a little bit about your your um, earlier history as a trumpet player, and perhaps if you like, what what's um, um, what's caused this shift over time to a more sort of electroacoustic and ambient sort of world. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, yeah, you're right. At that point, I was far more focused 
um, actually singularly focused on, on acoustic music making. I didn't really have any uh, connection to electronics or working with pedals or, you know, I'd, I'd work with musicians who were doing that sort of stuff, um, but my headspace wasn't really um, in that area. Um, for me, uh, I started as a jazz trumpet player, so I studied at the ANU in Canberra, um, graduated in 2011, and at that point I was really into um, free improvisation and sort of uh, contemporary ways of composing for improvisers, um, so really starting to dig into people like Woodard Leo Smith and Braxton and um, some of the Norwegian improvising crew like Ivan Loning and um, Christian Mollenbrood and that crew. Mm. Um, and I guess at that time when I just finished up studying, um, I was starting to develop a pretty uh, extensive uh, noise language, I guess, or extended mm. technique language. So I was really getting into people like Ivan Loning or um, Axel Döner in uh, mm. Berlin. Ivan Ivan Loney plays trumpet with Christian Mullenberg. That's right. Mullenberg. Yeah, yeah. He has this incredible duo uh, called Strife and Yuko. I can't pronounce that quite. Oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it was such a tragedy because I I remember they came to Canberra and played a duo in I think 2010 or something, and I didn't go to the gig because <laughs> I'd never heard of them. And then the next day, my trumpet teacher Mira Sabakowski showed me the CD, and I just remember like beating my head against the wall being like no why didn't i see this because it was just mm. the most incredible and inspiring thing i've ever heard so mm. that's kind of where i started and um when i finished uh anu i moved to berlin for a year and got really deep into the experimental uh free improv world so mm. um and i think when it comes to my journey with electronics um for a long time there uh what i was trying to do was essentially mimic what i was hearing in electronic or noise spaces on the trumpet mm. you know so um, in the most simplest terms, I wanted to sound like I was, you know, playing with a full-on distortion pedal or, you know, um, learning how to make those noises on, on my trumpet, you mm. know. And I went pretty far with that. Like, um, mm. when I moved to Melbourne, um, my practice was very much uh, pushing that forward, moving it back into other spaces like new music and composed music and jazz music and finding a lot of different ensembles where I could experiment with those things in different ways. Um, and I guess... Where electronics came in, um, it was more of a, a a practical limitation that I had to overcome. Um, mm. So one of my other sort of areas of uh, practice is working with dancers. So mm. I work a lot with a uh, incredible uh, dancer and choreographer and teacher, Tony Yap, who does a lot of work in, I guess, uh, East Asian trance practice. Um, and in 2015, we did a lot of work together. I went to India with him and played with him in uh, a residency and then went to his festival in Malaysia called um, the MAP Malacca Festival in a town called Malacca. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a two-week-long uh, intensive period with about 60 dancers, and I was one of the only musicians in the room at the time. Uh, the culmination of that festival was a four-hour-long durational show outdoors in the middle of monsoon season on top of a hill, um, in the middle of, Mala middle of Malacca and there was uh, 65 dancers, a few traditional musicians from Indonesia and a bull trance shaman who would walk around with a whip and would crack, um, you know, crack the, the air to sort of get everyone into a trance. And mm. so my job in that space was essentially to provide the music and kind of accompany the energy of the whole thing. Mm. And four hours is a long, four hours is a long time for a trumpet, yeah. <laughs> you know, so two things occurred at that point. One was that, um, I play trumpet and I, I can't keep this up for four hours at the intensity that this, that this 
context requires and two the the frequency range and the sort of uh expansiveness of what i have um just can't compete with this like we mm. need a sub like we need some some yeah, low drones sure. so yeah. at that point um i whipped out my computer grabbed some samples and just like you know found a way to drop it all down 10 octaves and just let it roll into mm. the space you know and that was kind of my yeah. my beginnings of looking into electronic music essentially mm. so um that was 2015 we're in you know this is about eight years later and now i sort of uh it's very rare that I go to a gig without a, a rack of pedals and a synthesizer next to me. So, such a huge setup. I think you have more gear than any trumpet player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's definitely a, a post-pandemic um, mm. curse. You know, being stuck in a room with all your gear means that it's hard to remember how to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Mm. I was going to say, you know, um, ditch the subs and just do pedals like Carl Gaffret. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's um, right. I, I, I had a school concert the other day and, um, and I heard like Carl... Um, um, playing pedals at these little kids who like play trombone and they were try- trying to play their pedal notes and Carl was just playing like almost an octave lower yeah. than like, um, it's a good sound one of my most favorite sounds is like pedals through a harmon mute on the microphone that's such a mm. huge um, it's one of my favorite tricks to do at say make it up club when Stevie's behind the uh, sound desk mm. because he'll just let it rip mm. so to speak yeah he likes bass that note. he likes bass yeah definitely yeah, before going a little um, deeper into what you are doing with electronics, I thought it, it could be interesting. Um, I mean, maybe there are some brass nerds listening to this <laughs> podcast. I mean, prob- probably not. But uh, but just in case, I was curious, um, and this this is for, for my own benefit as mm. well, you know, how, um, how have you approached learning some of these extended techniques? Because it can mm. be, you know, it can be a difficult thing to, to start mm. off on, you know, particularly things with like... Um, working out how to control multiphonics and, mm. and, and do these things in, in a very sort of deliberate way rather than just, mm. um, you know, trying to make a funky sound or something. Yeah, totally. And there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Like, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I would find Callum is a great example because he's someone who studied the tradition of that really well. You know, he's, he's learned how to play Stockhausen pieces and built all those uh, techniques into his system. Um, mm. But I guess my angle has been a bit more haphazard so to speak Mm. um i came from a space of uh just being interested in uh particular artists and being really inspired by what they do so Mm. um it was more of a hear a sound oh my god what is that how do i make it happen Mm. um and then you know i guess a long period of trial and error and um using the sort of feedback loop of well that didn't work kind of Mm. thing so but i think on a more rigorous sense um once I got a handle on uh, how certain sounds were made, and a lot of that was just by studying other musicians. So mm. watching how trumpet players make their sounds, you can you can sort of glean a certain amount of information by how what valves are being pressed down, how they're sort of uh, you know how they're using their embouchure or using their airflow to sort of make certain areas to sort of guesstimate where it is, and yeah. then after that, you like like any sort of element of making a a good brass sound you sort of hunt around find the thing and mm. then hone it in you know yeah, yeah um, trying to memorize the feeling and yeah exactly it's yeah. it's it's a at the end of the day it's really just a piece of pipe that you've got to figure out how to make a sound good you know and i mm. think um extended techniques are no different um and i think uh similarly to you know quote unquote good brass sound um once you have an image in your mind um you build flexibility you know mm. so when it comes to distortion or multiphonics or opening up that sort of wider spectrum of of 
overtones and noises you can pull out of the thing. Um, once you sort of get a handle on where you can access those, you build in exercises that can create um, a bigger range. So like a classic that I would do is um, once I found a multiphonic that I liked on the trumpet, say it's like, you know, valve one and three down and uh, valve two halfway there, you mm. find a sweet spot. There's a good one between like, you know, um, your concert A and your concert B, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, then you start just doing your lip slurs, essentially, and yeah, just like yeah, trying yeah. to work work your way down the overtone series and up the overtone series until you find those spots, you know. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, I've never been a very uh, studious or rigorous practicer at the best of times. I'm very much a... Uh, a you know, lead by feel and uh, lead by playing in a room with people. So I think a lot of what I do in that acoustic realm is um, a feedback loop between myself and other people in the room around me. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's interesting how similar actually some of the things you're describing are um, to, you know, what I'd recommend for a brass player just trying to play really traditionally. Mm. Is, you know, start from the point of view, particularly for more mature students, like start, start with the sound in your head, you know, Mm. listen to music work out what you want to sound like and have that image in your head as you and and then the technique follows that you know, totally thinking, totally yeah. and you know i guess the the only other thing that's probably useful to to round out the conversation is that i felt there was a period of time where um i had to learn how to sort of actually this relates to electronics as well kind of interestingly enough but um mm. i had to learn how to sort of do those two things at the same time you know mm. because they're mm. they're both um I feel like fundamentally they work the same way, but um, physically and in terms of, uh, you know, endurance and all that kind of stuff, um, I did have to build some chops around being able to jump from one to the other. I was mm. remember I was in this band, um, this great great band called Svelia, um in sort mm. of early 2000s, like around 2013 mm. to 15. Yeah, I remember that band. I, yeah. I saw them play uh, Bennett's Lane once. Yeah, it was a great band. Um, it, was a, it was a collection of Australians and Swedish crew. Um, so uh, some old Canberra mates of mine, uh, Luke Sweeting on piano, Aidan Lowe on drums, and then we had uh, Yuan and Casey Moyer, who are both in Sweden. Casey is originally from Australia, but has lived there for a long time. Um, and I guess that, that music was very, uh, very fast-paced in the sense that it was, um, we'd go from these beautiful, lush, sort of contemporary jazz kind of melodies into full-on noise and mm. like mm. switch between them really quickly. And that band was really good for me on this level because I, I had to learn how to pull out a good trumpet sound and then mm. also pull out the noisiest rat shit kind of thing I could and be able to kind of survive on both levels, you know, mm. so... And I uh, suppose that's that's also um, continues to be a part of your career, you know, and mm. I, I'm even thinking about things you've done in the last couple of months, you know, recently Phonetic Orchestra mm. played at, at Melbourne Recital Centre and that's a band which um, I feel like it's shifted a little bit recently, mm. kind of the last... Um, uh, with these sort of um, international collaborations that mm. you've you've been doing um, since COVID, but um, um, but particularly a few years ago with these sort of very long sleep concerts, you know, the way I think of that sound is is often from a brass point of view, incredibly quiet, in- incredibly pure and, mm. and sustained. You know, the opposite of yeah um, a lot of a lot of these uh, sounds we're talking about. Oh, it's a lot of work, um, and you know. I've I've never been so chopped. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Who would have thought sitting in a room for eight hours playing soft long tones would destroy you that much? Um, mm. But it's amazing, and yeah, mm. totally. I think I think that um, it's it's nice to get to a point as far as creative pursuit where you can think about those things in terms of contrasts and sort of broader ideas, as opposed to just trying to get the you know get the technique down mm. Um, mm. and having that sort of flexibility. It just you know 
takes time. I mean, that mm. ensemble's been around for 10 years yeah, now, which is uh, amazing. Yeah, and actually something you just mentioned then kind of leads me into one of the other things I wanted to ask about, and, th- and this is sort of moving more into um, the electronics, this idea of, of kind of flexibility and intuitiveness with, with making um, uh, different changes. And um, uh, it's it sort of strikes me as someone who's sort of um, dabbled with some electronics, but it's not really something that I, I, I would never say that I'm an electronic musician. You know, I love your um, electronic work, Joe. It's really, what, but it, none of it's live, really. I mean, I, it's very, very minimal live stuff. Mm. Um, and part of the reason for that is that um, that it's uh, it's like learning a, a totally new instrument. And I find one of the things that as you get um, experienced as a an acoustic instrumentalist is mm. that um, a lot of the physicality of playing becomes so. Um, connected to the idea of the sound in your head that the, the technique almost disappears if you're mm. really in, in the moment. Um, uh, I mean, of course, there are times where you, you know, the technical struggle of playing an instrument, <laughs> it's hard to ignore the fact that something's yeah. not working. But um, but in an ideal um, kind of performance situation, you've, you've sort of surpassed the point where the technique is the main um, sort of focus. Mm. Um, but for me, you know, someone who's only done very minimal electronics, whenever I'm um, dealing with that stuff, it's a very sort of um, uh, kind of cognitive sort of space. You know, I'm thinking a lot about just the mechanics of, you know, well, this knob does this and mm. this parameter changes this. Um, and uh, um, and I found it kind of difficult to really sort of get into a sense of musical flow. Mm. Um, and, and that's only working with very sort of simple stuff, you know. So when I see your, um, your setup... <laughs> um, I think, oh, geez. <laughs> so, yeah. so how have you, um, how have you kind of developed that to a point where, um, or have you developed it to a point where it feels yeah. like you're sort of really flowing and intuitive and, and yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, it, I would describe it as, um, it's like you're making music with a pair of me- metaphorical weights on your ankles. Like, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to sprint, but you've got like these like 30 kilogram weights on your feet as you're trying to run. <laughs> Sounds like great fun. Yeah, um. it's, it is, it is definitely a thing. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, for me, um, that experience was very real and very intense. Um, and uh, especially because a lot of what I do, in a musical sense, um, revolves around improvisation, around mm. this, um, you know, even if I'm playing a very composed work of mine or something that has a lot of discipline around it, there's still quite a lot of factors that rely on being able to shift and think and move organically in the mo- in the moment, you mm. know. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, when it comes to, you know, learning electronics, that can be a real problem because it does, uh, the experience you've, you've described is, is spot on. Like, it does take... Uh, as much work as learning to play your your main acoustic instrument to get these things sounding good they just have slightly different um you know barriers or things that take a bit of time you know so for me um i that's probably why i gravitated the pedals in the first place so a lot of what i uh do now has a bit of a, a spread you know i work with laptops i work with um pre-recorded stuff um but uh, still pedals are kind of my main thing um, I work with synthesizers too, obviously. Um, but I liked pedals because um, they were the most compact, simplistic version of electronics I could find. You mm. know, mm. Um, you plug it in; it's got X amount of knobs. Each of those knobs usually does one function. Um, mm. You know, maximum two or three. Um, so for me, that was just enough for me to go, okay, I can relate to this um, in some way that is similar to my acoustic practice. You know. Mm. Um, 
and it became a matter of learning that instrument, you know. Um, but certainly, uh, for a long time there, for a good couple of years, um, I was very careful not to get that stuff out in front of other people. It was very yeah, much a sort okay. of internal, um, in the practice room, mm. uh, working on these ideas. And, you know, I, I would use it to make studio recordings or use it to make sort of other sounds there, but a very much a sort of, um, I wouldn't say woodshedding, but more of a sort of private experimentation mm. kind of space um mm. but yeah at a certain point i realized that um you know just like you do when you learn how to improvise with other people um there's only so much you can do by yourself before you have to actually bring it out into the real world and find those connection points you know mm. um so at a certain point in that in that sort of period once i sort of um realized that a this was something that was complementing my practice and and not holding me back mm. um and that i was serious enough to go okay well this is obviously part of my world now um I just started bringing it to every single gig I was doing. It was mm. kind of fun. So like, you know, I'd, I'd be doing like five gigs a week and it'd be like everything from like a noise band to a jazz band to like some sort of, um, you know, funk thing or whatever. And I'd just mm. bring my pedal board along. Mm. Um, I, sometimes I wouldn't use it at all, but it was more that thing of like, okay, I'm going to put this in a situation where I'm making music and having to respond um, as I need to as an acoustic musician, but mm. I'm just going to have this in my world, you know? Mm. And, you know, it started off being like, you know, uh, I would hear a sound in my head or, or want to respond a certain way, turn around, and it would take me like half the amount of time to make the... Sorry, uh, it would take me twice as long to make that mm. sound work, you know. Mm. So by that point, the moment's gone and we've sort of mm. lost the whole thread mm. of it. But, you know, give it a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years, and all of a sudden it feels like it's uh, all attached to the same thing. Mm. But the lag is real. <laughs> it yeah, takes, it takes yeah, a while yeah. to get there, you know. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, and you know, I think sometimes the the difference between being like a professional music and musicians are learning these skills mm. compared to a student is that you already know what good stuff sounds like, mm. and mm. you know when you're not achieving it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you really sort of feel feel um, you know missing a moment like that potentially mm. as a sort of failure, and and um, I think you have to just be comfortable with that. You know, sometimes totally. you know, and, and be comfortable with the fact that. Um, when you're developing new things, it's not going to be the best version of itself straight away. And mm. but but you can't use that as an excuse never to do it. Yeah, exactly. Well. You just need patient friends, <laughs> yeah. essentially, or, under, or undiscerning friends. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully, but, patient friends. That's right. That's right. But it's interesting. Interesting too, because I feel like um, you know, if I think about the way I make music these days. Um, uh, I will admit there was a period of time there where there was a fixation on this stuff and being, mm. you know, a need to kind of make make it work in every context. Mm. Um, partly from this rigor of like, okay, this needs to feel comfortable, but also that thing of I'm obsessed with this, so surely it will work everywhere else, you know. But, yeah, sure. you know, take on a couple of years later. I mean, think about all the things we've done musically where we think about it two years later and realize that we were just mm. completely fixated on the wrong thing, mm. you know. Mm. And I feel like now when it comes to the way I... Uh, integrate electronics into my music I feel like I'm um, much more structurally aware now than I was before you know so um, I look at the musical context and what it needs and I bring what is needed to the space rather mm. than bringing the whole <laughs> the whole box and all the tricks yeah, so to speak yeah yeah um, maybe it's a case of you know choosing just the right thing out of all the many options that you, that you have available to yeah you, you know? and Dave Brown's a good example of that like mm. um Dave Brown's, um, if people don't know, he's an incredible uh, improviser and noise artist based in Melbourne. Um, one of Melbourne's kind of best kept secrets on the international stage. An incredibly mm. influential 
improviser, someone who's really been a big part of my life. Um, yeah, very much so locally. Yeah, exactly. In a certain scene. Yeah, incredible human. And I, the way he makes music um, with pedals is that he's got a whole bunch of them. Like he's got bags and bags of beautiful machines. And mm. whenever I played with him, he'll bring a different bag of stuff, mm. chuck it on the floor, put it all together and make some sounds out of it, you know? Mm. But but the way I've, I've observed him making music, at least with me, is that he... He knows intimately the sound that each of those things makes and then mm. assembles it in a certain way to make the music. And mm. I think that's a really beautiful way of approaching this sort of stuff on a fundamental level. Mm. 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 Yeah. I mean, even just, just before we started the um, recording today, you mentioned the 5049 podcast, which is something mm. that kind of a similar format to this run by a clarinetist called Christian Simon. Simonman? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Simon. Jeremiah. Sorry. Uh, who, yeah. am I, who am I getting confused with? Oh, Jeremiah Simmerman? Simmerman, yeah. Simmerman. Um, and uh, I remember he was talking about, um, he had a little bit of a rant about people using all of their gadgets. You know, yeah. Kind of indiscriminately and said he kind of likes the um, the idea of, you know, going to a gig just with like, just a reverb pedal or just, you know, like mm. one one thing and really try to go deep with what that can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But having said that, you know, I've, I've seen a few things where, you know, people get their first pedal and it's a reverb pedal and suddenly it's yeah. just like, you know, it's basically their normal thing, but it's in the bathroom now. That's know? right. That's right. Yeah. Ironically, I'm at the stage now where um, people make it a thing if I just bring my trumpet. They're like, oh my God, Ruben's just playing trumpet today. <laughs> yeah. And it's great fun because I, you know, uh, because of the amount of different stuff I do, um, I love those moments because it brings me back into a different um, way of thinking. It, it doesn't feel like it's different. It's just like... Oh, you know, I, I can tap back into this other world again. You know, mm, it's good fun. Mm. Um, so let's talk a little about a bit about the specific piece that you played mm. at New North, which was, um, if I recall, a couple of the movements that you released on um, your album, The House Is Empty. Mm. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about those um, two movements and um, you know how they came about? Yeah, the growth developments and stuff like that. Sure, sure. So. Um, this uh, this concert that we're talking about was a really uh, good time for me um, in the sense that uh, I just released this new body of work, The House Is Empty. It's my first time releasing a solo record. Um, and so it was kind of a vulnerable moment for me in the sense because I normally work under um, a, a band name called I Hold The Lion's Paw, which is a, a very different... Um, I guess a very different sort of focus musically in terms of um, how it works. So this was kind of a, a different thing for me in terms of uh, both uh, what I'm presenting, uh, but also how I'm making it. So The House is Empty is actually a collection of uh, short commissions that were developed over 2020-2021. Um, one, one piece, for example, which is sort of the main sort of backbone of the piece that at New North um, which is called The House is Empty, was actually a 20-minute meditation piece that was designed for, you know, peak 2020 stresses. Um, mm. It was commissioned by the Art Orchestra and the substation mm. um, and was designed to kind of give everyone a moment of respite. Um, and that was composed using uh, trumpet and pedals, mm -hmm. um, but then uh, in a post-production space uh, really morphed and um, transformed to a point where you couldn't really tell it was anything. It sort of sounds closer to... Uh, organs or synthesizers mm. played for a very long time mm. um, so the 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 album itself uh, kind of goes through a few of these states um, that's the first track the second track together apart is far more straightforward it's just me playing trumpet into my pedals and then recording that so very much mm. a simple 
um, bounce out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Then it moves into uh, compositions involving synthesizers and also uh, incorporating some text and voice from my collaborator, Tony Yap, the dancer I mentioned before. Mm. Um, and Tony's really important in this story, I think, because uh, we've had a very long uh, period of collaboration together and lots of uh, ways of exploring new ideas together. And um, within the solo context, I think a lot of what I make has been connected to dance. So um, mm. some of the tracks on the album are literally improvisations that i've done with tony with mm. tony removed from the picture mm. um so he's he physically isn't there in terms of body but i feel like the his sense of creativity and space and uh energy are embedded within the structure of the piece mm. you know yeah. um, and, and literally his voice literally well, his voice yeah. as well yeah, yeah. so and he, that's something i want to pick up on actually is mm. the sort of what sort of narrative or storytelling aspects are, um, mm. that there are in the piece? Because that's something that you've done in a number of other collaborations as well as work with text. And yeah, it sort of hangs around. Like, it's never been something I've actively pursued. It just seems to be something that always comes back into the orbit of what I'm working on. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think uh, in terms of how I translated it into uh, the New North performance, um, I would say that um, it was less less sort of distinct chapters from the album and more like uh, using the album material um, in a new way in a live context because mm. that was very much a studio lockdown period of, of, of activity. So mm. the New North concert was great for me because it was a chance to actually do this stuff live and figure yeah. out how I do it, you know. And mm. it was a great learning because, um, you know, usually when I use pedals um, or electronics in a live context, it's very much... Uh, generative in the moment and mm. just sort of uh, responding to what's Responses, around the space yeah. but you know I can't do that with this music there's too much going on yeah. you know um, so I had to figure out how to kind of compose that in you know in a laptop sense essentially mm. so um, the way I did it was essentially uh, I played through a couple of uh, distinct pre-composed sections that were being played through a laptop and mm. then would um, respond to that on top with with mm. pedals and whatnot and uh yeah, Tony, Tony's voice in that uh, performance kind of guides the whole thing. So mm. um, he sort of asserts himself in various parts of the performance. And also in post-production, um, I thought it was important to kind of show him in the space as well. So the video of the mm. concert, you can see actually overlays of Tony dancing as well. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think in terms of your question about uh, narrative and structure... Um, I'm, I'm not even sure if it's a narrative I'm chasing. It's more like a, a sense of holding space. Because mm. um, Tony and I work a lot in, uh, well, I guess in his practice, which is uh, around uh, trance and mm. looking at deep ways of, um, you know, uh, taking what he's embodied in his, throughout his entire life as a Chinese relation living in, in Melbourne with a strong connection to Indonesia and other areas, um, finding ways to take his culture and his and his experiences into a sort of postmodern contemporary space um yeah. and i've somehow managed to connect into that and to be part of that journey so i think that idea of um space holding and holding certain energies and focuses um is what the the voice is trying to do in this particular instance hmm. Hmm. yeah interesting <laughs> um and um uh you know you mentioned how collaborative a lot of your other um hmm. work is and and um, uh, some of those collaborations have also involved, you know, the the words of other people. Mm. You know, I mean, some that come to mind are uh, we worked together on something years ago. Now feels mm. like a very long time. Ago, <laughs> I mean, it was only twenty 
16 yeah maybe something like that but yeah 16 17 or something a, a project yeah. with unfix which was a mm. an outgrowth of the bennett's lane big band which we did with um penny quartet and georgie davidis and mm. um you know did a bunch of interviewing with friends and partners and all mm. that sort of stuff and uh, and use their words in various ways and and so there was that project but also um closed beginnings which was yeah. something we got a little bit of uh, a little bit of praise for <laughs> yeah think, as well yeah um uh, with Peter Knight and um, Tahir and Lavonda. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was ob- obviously something that keeps coming back into your practice. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can only put it down to being fortunate enough to meet such wonderful people and to work with them. But mm. um, I guess all those examples, uh, I think the the text is kind of a natural progression from the, the human connection and mm. the, the collaborative mm. aspect of it. You know, so the Unfix uh, piece was quite beautiful because it was a sort of... Uh, circular collaborative process where Georgie would give us prompts and questions to to ask our significant friends um, and then that would kind of feed back into this compositional process and I think those kinds of uh, spaces finding ways to kind of illuminate the conversation that is underneath it is quite fascinating and Mm. I mean Georgie's amazing at that she's got Mm. a really beautiful way of uh, of creating this kind of uh, abstract funny but extraordinarily deep kind of way yeah, of giving it's, text it's, it's, it's pretty amazing when she does it you know mm. and she can she can um tap into a lot with barely anything you know even yeah. like you know tone of voice facial expression um, oh. which you see live of course but um yeah and that's a real gift you know that's a real type of i think social yeah. intelligence that you know you can't learn you know? oh it's incredible it's great and i would say Tururo and tony are similar in that sense mm. that um they uh when i think about collaborating with them or working with them um it takes a very long time for me to actually clock into the text in a funny way mm. um you know, even now i listen to that close beginnings album um and Tururo will say something that i haven't heard before and this is mm. years later and i'll mm. just be blown away because her her poetry and her her use of space and vivid imagery is so intense um but it's often often it's that sort of uh feeling that is similar to you know instrumental music or other forms of improvising where you're feeling it more than you know uh, computing it or something like mm. this you know um, yeah I feel mm. very lucky to, to work with these people mm. um, so I'm I'm sure anyone who's listening is getting the impression that um, you keep yourself very busy <laughs> um, you do a lot of different things and and um, uh, spread your time across a lot of different projects but there, there's other things in your professional life that we haven't even touched on yet mm. and so something I wanted to uh, ask you about is um, how you have organized your life mm. as, a, as a, a freelancer also now working a little bit more in kind of organizational contexts mm. and um, um, because there are so many ways I suppose of, of creating a musical career and none of them are easy and mm. all of them have different challenges and sometimes um, you know, I think we kind of get stuck in our own lane, you know. Mm. Um, and so I think it'd be really interesting um, for anyone listening to sort of hear about how you've managed to um, create your particular career as an artist, you know, mm. because it's not just making art. There's there's a lot of other stuff going on in the background. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's almost a where do you start kind of context. I mean, mm. um, when I think about these sorts of questions, I, I do feel the need to acknowledge that I would consider myself a second generation artist in my family mm. um, in the sense that my, my mother is a visual artist. Um, my, my dad's a visual artist. My little brother is also an artist. Um, 
I collaborate with my mother all the time. <clears throat> We've done projects, um, you know, installation works together. She's always mm. done the visual art for my albums. Um, Diana Fogwell. Diane Fogwell, yeah. Diane, sorry, Diane. Diane Fogwell, that's her name. Mm. She, she's amazing. Um, my brother did the photography for my latest album for uh, I Hold the Lion's Paw, for example. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Is that yeah, that's the wrapped The wrapped up, head, the yeah, wrapped that's head. right. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. <laughs> it's pretty, and pre-pandemic as well, oh, which is uh, even weirder. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so I, th- I think I think that plays a really important role in the sense that I've never had to justify anything I'm doing in an artistic space to my loved ones. I've mm. never had to go, here's why I'm doing this gig for free, or here's mm. why I'm doing this thing that makes no uh, sense to someone outside of the arts, mm. <laughs> so to speak. So a lot of loading has been removed from my my you know. Uh, focus and you know I've, I've been given a lot of trust and love and support along the way to kind of pursue what I need to do mm. um, that being said also I think that um, uh, you know mentors and supporters along the way have allowed me to be very uh, proactive in what I do so mm. when it comes to making art um, I very rarely wait around for someone else to book me in so to mm. speak I mean also but no one I, needs a trumpet player <laughs> <laughs> no I mean that that is definitely something though that that um you know, that I see in the way that, that you know, you go and you get what you mm. want, you know, and you approach artists and you're not afraid to say, hey, you know, I love your work. Mm. I'd, I'd love to do something with you, you know, and yeah. you make it happen. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I suppose the flip side of that is I, I have, you know, friends who have, uh, you know, have complained constantly mm. about, oh, you know, such and such has this opportunity that I deserve. And, mm. You know, people who feel sorry for themselves. And sometimes that's understandable because... Mm. You know, there are so many amazing musicians who've who've developed their craft to an incredibly high level, but of course it doesn't follow that that always necessarily translates to you having the career that you think you deserve. You know, it's something yeah. you actually have to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I've probably been guilty of that myself. You know, complaining, oh, we all have. Complaining sure. about the difficulties <laughs> of making an artistic career. But, um, mm. but like you said, you know, mm. you make it happen. Mm, mm. Um, so uh, at the moment, you know, yeah. um, maybe describe to me what um what the average week looks like for Ruben what are the various yeah. things that you're doing to make make ends meet at the moment yeah for sure and I'm happy to wind it back and sort of tell you the the, the steps that went into mm, that too because that's uh, yeah. it does follow on from that that initial thought of like go out and get it for sure um but you know for context I guess you know the average working week for me um is a bit different this year this is the first time I've actually not done any individual uh, music teaching which mm. is you know for most musicians out there it's the bread and butter it's how we mm. pay our rent mm. um, regardless of how successful you are <laughs> like the most the most acclaimed musicians in Australia will still probably be doing some some private teaching mm. in the corner you know yeah. just, that's how this industry works yeah, um, there's only a handful who aren't exactly exactly right um, so yeah I, I realized uh, this year that I needed to make a bit of a jump so now um, the way I'm basically making a living is uh, I do a lot of my own artistic work obviously but um i also work for um a few days with the australian art orchestra um my official role now is their digital producer um i also manage their um independent label aeo recordings um and do uh you know manage the releases and do pr and marketing and that kind of stuff for them too um i also work um with a fantastic label in sydney called eShift music um, I'm part of the the small team that gets things out there. So I do uh, video asset design, I do PR, I do uh, 
strategy development, so to speak. Mm. Um, and also, I guess uh, I'm increasingly finding myself doing a little more freelance work in marketing, in video editing, in uh, audio engineering, and mm. uh, a bit of producing as well. So that's kind of my, uh, on a week by week, I'm doing a sort of part office admin for the arts, part uh, engineering music stuff, and part mm. straight up music. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I suppose that um, you've always been very proactive promoting your own projects, and, and perhaps that's something that's rolled into you having um, developed all of those skills that you need mm. to be able to do something like PR and marketing. You know, I, I think there are a lot of um, a lot of musicians who know they have to do it, mm. but they don't know where to start. You know, they haven't maybe built up the connections, or you know, they don't know what you have to do for an album release. And you know, mm. I'm, I've mm. I've certainly put myself in that category. I I haven't. Mm. Um, spent the time to really be on top of those skills. Um, mm. Would you be happy to talk a little bit about yeah. know, what's involved with that sort of stuff? Yeah, of course, of course. And you know, it's it's totally understandable. I mean, to make to make good art, you have to spend every waking moment working on it. Mm. <laughs> you know, so when you have to kind of uh, do that and then do the PR on top of it, mm. it's it's quite crushing. For it a feels lot of like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. You know, partic- particularly if it's <clears throat> particularly if that's something that um, you know you really don't enjoy doing mm. i mean do we does anyone really enjoy doing it? i mean people, you can enjoy people, the chase i think people maybe choose to do marketing for a job I yeah mean, you're one of them yeah exactly <laughs> so exactly my mind but, but you know it's uh, it I'm is a funny it. thing because i think uh you know part of part of the last sort of uh i guess maybe five years of my life has been a dramatically fast uh perspective opening process mm. you know mm. um which which is actually start by getting uh extraordinary opportunity with the Australian Art Orchestra called the Pathfinder Program, which mm. was um, kind of the beginnings of this journey a little bit because sure. um, yeah. you are right, I have been quite industrious in the sense that um, a very long time ago, I, I came to the realisation and the acceptance that no one's going to care what I do um, unless I tell them about it. Mm. Um, mm. And that's not a sort of an ego thing. It's more of just like there's amazing music everywhere and there's so much of it and the accessibility uh, to it is very immediate, which mm. means that... Um, you know, long, long gone are the days where you can be just an incredible musician and have someone else um, do all the other work for you. It's just for the mm. majority of us, it's not uh, a realistic strategy anymore. Mm. So, so yeah, in the early days when I first moved to Melbourne, it was about um, just being very proactive and booking gigs, booking bands, um, finding opportunities. Um, you know, I had these uh, periods of investment, I'd call them investment years, where I would, mm. um, I'd pay to go and do xy residency or you know go over to do this this thing in malaysia with tony or Mm. you know i'd put money down because i knew that those experiences would be either enriching for me creatively or at least give me some context that i was missing so Mm. it started off there and then um by the time i sort of got to 2018 2019 i was feeling a bit of a uh an exhaustion when it came to teaching you know so mm-hmm. for that, that entire period i was lucky to have two or three days of solid teaching work mm-hmm. um which paid the paid the bills mm-hmm. turned into paying the mortgage which was really good but i got a bit weary with that and i think mm-hmm. that um even though i'm a really passionate teacher and love it um i just knew that i needed something else and yeah but you know the more you do teaching well the more it becomes consuming you know? yeah and, exactly you know i do i do a bunch of it and um really like it but yeah it's, it's tiring it is tiring and you've really got to be very very clear to yourself and the people around you um you know colleagues and students um in equal part about how much you can take on because it's Mm. it's very 
um, it's very important work and it's very um, consuming work in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, so I felt that I was starting to get to the the end of my uh, enthusiasm for that that space. So I was trying to find new ways, but also I think um, I'm really interested in in um, not just generating activity, but also building communities and building networks across different things. I, I like lots of different music. Mm. I like lots of different ways of making, uh, you know, interesting stuff. So um, I think I've always been, um, you know, quote unquote, a networker in mm. some sense, wanting to sort of web things together and sort of build other spaces. So I think, I guess my interest was sort of peaking in that area and I wanted to find a way to get involved. And um yeah, this opportunity with the art orchestra was an interesting one because it was kind of uh to boil it down it's kind of a part associate artist role and part sort of uh arts admin role so mm. the whole sort of point behind it was that you got a peek into a larger organization and got a started to uh you could actually be on the ground with um a you know a four-year funded organization making work and understanding what happens behind the scenes to do that you know mm. Um, which, you know, uh, it's very similar to what you would do as an independent artist, but there are other mechanisms and other sorts of uh, complexities that you have to take into account um, when you're dealing with an organisational level, you know. Yeah, so. yeah you know, and, and, um, and I suppose also with those um, being funded in that way, there's, um, you know, there's probably different metrics for measuring as, as the success of the organisation compared to an individual project grant or something like yeah. that. Yeah, all of a sudden KPIs are a thing. Mm, KPI. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was actually trying not to say KPI, yeah, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'll let you in on a secret, no one in the arts world likes the word, but it's just yeah. it's just yeah. the one way to sort of encapsulate a very particular thing. But yeah, so I think that was, um, you know, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but I think it does all sort of connect into a longer sort of strategy because that, that gave me a point of access that I hadn't had before. Like people mm. can... People can study marketing. People can study producing. They they know how to. Uh, there are people who do this as a as a full time job. But as an artist who's making, um, who's making work and wants to find ways to do more of it and you know, uh, get it out there. Um, it's kind of hard. Like you can't drop everything and go and do a marketing course. And also, I would argue that a lot of that information probably doesn't relate to us. You know, it's mm. very it's very geared towards a particular way of doing things. And so, mm. working with the art orchestra was. Um, came at a great time for me because I was starting to, to want to get more skills and more access into these spaces. And lo and behold, I got this space. And then mm. um, the pandemic came along and all of a sudden we had this um, moment where live performance was dead or not really around anymore. And there was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a gap for new activity to happen. Um, mm. And at that point um, I kind of led the charge with AAO to start up uh, or restart AAO recording. So mm. Previously to that, um, a lot of their records, um, things like Ruby or things like uh, Incredible Works by Paul Grabowski over the years had been released um, maybe as part of their imprint, but, you know, not sort of really uh, with any sort of mechanism to sort of maintain them or sort of do them the right way. Yeah, and there, there had been a little bit of downtime, I think, between releases exactly. as well, because a lot of those releases happened, I suppose, between about... Well, my, I'm just guessing here, but about between '94 and nine, and probably 2000. And yeah, exactly. Four, Something like that. A ten-year period of real activity there, where you know there was Ruby, like I said, and the passion, mm. passion project, and um, yeah, um, the uh, Into the Fire. That's and, right. Yeah, um, Crossing Rope Bar, all those, yeah, all those amazing Testament, which is a San Diego. Yeah, I don't know if that was released as a. a, a 
official album. No, it wasn't. But there was a recording floating around. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we're just in this situation where, um, because that organisation is kind of uh, fortunate in the sense that we have the capacity in-house to record a lot of what we do. So Mm. we had this backlog of amazing stuff. um, And Peter Knight, who's the artistic director, um, was... Uh, he sort of gave me a nudge and said, hey, why don't you just try and like get this thing moving while we have this downtime? And mm. I sort of took it upon myself to really um, push um, that element of, of the imprint. So um, in the space of a couple of years, we went from sort of no recent releases to being nominated for Arias and being, mm. um, you know, getting Apple Music Awards and having really good releases coming out. So mm. I guess I kind of uh, took that same approach I've been taking with everything else I'm doing in my life into... Uh, you know, driving that kind of boat, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess, you know, to answer the question of um, what's involved with that sort of stuff, um, yeah. there's quite a few elements, but I think fundamentally um, the big conceptual shift is um, is trying to, uh, which is understandable, trying to sort of move from that thing of, okay, I've, I've composed the thing, I've recorded the thing, I've mastered it, I've, re- I've put it out on whatever medium I want, it's done. It's out in the world. Great. Like mm. I've I've done my job. This is amazing. Um, mm. Sort of getting getting away from that that headspace to like okay now the actual hard work begins. Mm. <laughs> you know because mm. uh, I think a lot of us understandably so we put so much of our heart and souls into making the music we make um, that the idea of um, having to you know flog it or you know trying to sort of get it out there is quite a sort of uh, you know. not a very pleasant task you know Mm. um but i think uh for me a lot of it was just sort of trying to shift that understanding and realizing that though the work i've done is is great i love it i think it's really important music and it needs to be uh presented somehow and just Mm. sort of um creating a strategy or creating an enthusiasm around um making sure that people get a chance to hear it you know Mm. and it's it's simple stuff sometimes like you know um Whenever, whenever people ask me this stuff, I say go and go and read the Bandcamp Artist Guide mm. because they have a really fantastic blow by blow list of the things you should do before you release your album on Bandcamp. You know, mm. and those people are lovely. The uh, the the representative from Australia and New Zealand lives in Melbourne and he's a mm. phone call away. He's a lovely dude. Mm. You know, so there's there's lots of people um, in this space who are doing good work um and it's just yeah you know and and i think you're kind of touching on something there which which could also be a bit of a conceptual shift as well and that Mm. is that you know if you're promoting work you're um you're really kind of tapping into um, a network of people in different Mm. types of mediums and different types of jobs um who rely on um artists um to actually be um i suppose part of the part of the network part of the process them as well you know if you're a radio presenter you need to find new work you need people to mm. send it to you and make you aware of it you know if you're a music reviewer you know mm. you're going to do a certain amount of research yourself and find you know keep your finger to the pulse but mm. part of that is also them developing um relationships with people like us you know musicians who they know and trust and um and when they see reuben lewis is releasing something they're going to think oh great that's worth my attention mm. you know i know it's going to be of a certain quality and um, mm. and um, and you know, so h- how much time do you spend developing um, relationships with people who are mm. in these sort of other aspects of the, the you know music industry, whether it be you know reviewers mm. or um, uh, people working in radio or, or people mm. working in festivals who might be programming works? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, I think 
some words of advice that Lawrence English, who runs Room 40, uh, come to mind in the sense that uh, when we were starting AO recordings or restarting AO recordings, we had some consultation with him to sort of get a feel for what's involved because, you know, we're all kind of learning in these spaces. And the one thing he said that was really um, powerful to me was the idea of consistency. You know, so he was basically saying, whatever you do, do it well and do it for a long time, mm. you know. Um, and I think that that is the simplest way to answer that question. Um, mm. I think a lot of, like any good relationship, there's a long period um, of, mm. of getting to know people and getting gaining trust and gaining sort of a, a sense of um, mutual respect and enthusiasm for what's going on, you know. Mm. So um, I think... Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, releasing work, for example, I'm just trying to make sure that I have a bare minimum of, of thoroughness that I do for everything I do now, you know? Mm-hmm. So if I, if I do release something, I make sure that I've got uh, a really good presser ready to go. And I make sure that I, I, I let my people know um, on a regular basis what it is. I don't flood them with information all the time, mm-hmm. but I make sure that I, I send my list of people at least a couple of emails that just says what's going on, you know? Mm. Um, but I think it's that thing of, yeah, it does take time. I mean, sometimes those relationships won't bear any obvious fruit for, mm. you know, five to 10 years. Like it just mm. takes, it takes yeah. a long period of time. But I think what's, if you, if you go towards that um, approach of um, like, like we do with music, like, you know, we don't, we don't like um making bad music you know Mm. or making bad sound like we we want to be thorough and rigorous about what we we put out there and Mm. i think if you take that similar kind of approach in terms of um looking around getting advice reading the very helpful how-to guides and following them but also following them the next time and the next time the next Mm. time Mm. um then by the time you reach that sort of longer period you'll generate a genuine relationship with people Mm. Um, yeah yeah yeah, no, it's, it's it's great advice. And you never know what's going to hit, you know? Exactly. Um, and um, uh, you, you did mention, you know, you, you've got your sort of list of people who you might mm. email about stuff. Um, and, you know, for context, mm. how many people are on this list of people? Because I suspect it's more oh, than yeah. for many, many people realise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it fluctuates, you know? Like, um, because, uh, yeah, I think there's also stru- there's also different uh, stratas than that. You know, I'd say I'd have a... I'd have a a core group of people who I've got really good relationship with, you know, who I know if I, if I call this person about this particular thing, they'll love it. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll make sure to, when that thing's coming down the pipeline, be it like an e-shift release or an AO release or my own thing that's kind mm-hmm. of, uh, that's got, you know, something that fits their world. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be in direct contact with them, mm-hmm. you know, but there's also, you know, a very, a very large group of people who I'm just keeping informed, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, I think that's also the other thing too is, um, it's it's good to remember that whilst especially if you're doing it yourself like uh it might be your baby it might be the most incredible thing that you've ever done and you're so mm. passionate about it but it might just not fit for like yeah. you know these people totally um, and you know you have to just be ready for um for a little bit of indifference or no response and that's that's fine yeah. i reckon my favorite response from a, mm. a, an email about an album release was uh, i um it was someone i, I didn't know but mm. I, i've been given a, a kind of contact list by yeah. by someone and one of them was a I think maybe a San Francisco radio presenter or something like that and I yeah. sent his email out um, and they never responded but they put me on their mailing list yeah so, so <laughs> I, I just get all these emails about their program like on a weekly basis yeah um, exactly you know and it's funny too because like I, I've had a couple of experiences recently where I've been like oh 
I haven't heard from this person for a while. Maybe I'm just really like getting on their nerves because you sure. know, like yeah. maybe I'm just sending like too many releases. But then you know, yeah. I'll get I'll get a message the next day being like, oh, thanks for keeping me informed. You know, yeah. like mm. I think I think people, if you are respectful of what of what their job is and what their um, constraints and considerations are, people appreciate being told what's going on. You know, mm. or being informed, like, um, and I think it is just that thing of uh, the more you, the more you try and build context for a what what you need to do, and also what other people are dealing with. Um, you just like in conversation, you learn how to find the right language to communicate mm. the thing. Yeah, and and you know sometimes you might send something out um, into the world, and it's not it's not the right thing or the right time for a particular relationship mm. to work out. But, mm. you know, I, I sent um, uh, my solo album Soft to, to a particular record label that I like and got a really lovely response from mm. the, from the, the um, label owner. And they said, oh, it sounds really, really good. You know, I like this and this about it. Um, not quite what mm. I'm doing right now, mm. but, you know, send the next thing. You know, yeah. I want to I hear it. And... Um, and you know, so it might end up being a five-year, ten-year investment, and maybe something that you do in future will be right for that particular label. You, know, you never know. Totally. But, yeah. Um, but you know, you have to do it to to find out. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's that's the case in a lot of um, different areas. I mean, you know, th- that reminds me of um, the old thing about funding. Like, you know, you mm. you apply once, and then you apply again, then you apply again, and maybe you'll get it. <laughs> but mm. even if you don't every process is um, informative. And mm. I think every one of those contact points means something, or it, maybe it can mean something if yeah. you if you know how to harness that, that interaction. Yeah, and if you learn from it. And, and I know like I, my, my perspective on funding has changed a lot. I, th- I think there are a lot of artists who don't really know mm. um, how to write an application that's gonna be viable for, for yeah. particular funding bodies. And so when, they, when they're not successful, I mean, it's tricky without some mentorship, you know. I mm. think we've probably both been lucky to have some good mentorship from people who know mm. that sort of space. And um, um, But um, uh, it's very tempting to think, oh, well, they don't understand what I'm doing, mm. you know, mm. or um, it's so unfair, you know, the same people always get the money and, yeah. you know, which isn't quite true anyway. But, mm. but you know, it's, it's, it's often easy to blame the system rather than to, you know, reflect back on yourself and think okay you know maybe maybe i need a bit of advice you know maybe i need someone to help me write you know maybe maybe writing and expressing yourself clearly isn't Mm. isn't your strength or maybe you you know you haven't read the australia council's corporate guidelines and and their corporate (laughs) plan and you don't know what their values are and you don't know how to speak to them and Mm. you know there's there's a lot of just literacy in that space as well which Mm. is something you learn with experience and hopefully a little bit of um, advice from people who, who are clued into it. And you remind me of something actually, because uh, when I when I was fortunate enough to get that Pathfinder role in 2019, um, that was in a very dark period for me in terms of that exact question mm. of, of getting mm. support for what I'm doing. Because, yep. um, I mean, I've been so lucky in my career in terms of being involved with such interesting projects and having support to do those things. But I... My hit rate in terms of um, you know funding my own projects is actually quite low. Yeah, mine's um, mine's zero percent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, New York, New North has has had um, you know we're funded. You've by been lucky, but you're doing good stuff, you know. Yeah. But we've also had advice from people who know this space, and you know we've had we've had people we consult with who 
help mm. us to edit applications and find the right angle. Yeah, you know, and we've, you know, um, myself and Carol and Andy have treated a lot of this stuff as a professional learning opportunity as well because, yeah. um, and, and I have to say, after doing this for a, a couple of years and having had a few successes with applications now, um, I feel like the next time I do an application for myself, it may or may not get up, mm. but I feel like I'll write a, a pretty solid application. Yeah. Totally. Well, that's that's kind of why I was so grateful and why why I leapt so quickly at the the art auction thing because mm. I felt that I was getting to a point where something something in the way that I was going about that particular element wasn't hitting right, mm. um, or I just mm. I just didn't have. I was growing frustrated with my own feelings about it, but also growing frustrated with the the sentiment that I was feeling um, in terms of the the general sort of uh, environment that I was making music in. You know, it sort mm. of felt like mm. there was there were things going on that I couldn't understand or didn't have a context for, and I needed to rectify yeah. that. You and know? look, you don't know what you don't know a lot of the time. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, um, yeah, and you know the the way to deal with a a, a grant not being successful is. Um, it's definitely not to go on Facebook and whinge about it. Because <laughs> no one cares. No one, oh, no one, no one cares. I mean, everyone loves a victim, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And you're not doing yourself any favors in that context. It just, no. uh, yeah, better to better to ask questions, mm. I would say. Well, that's why. So, so for anyone who's listening, who's feeling like this, you know, mm. please reach out that's to, right. to someone other than me because I'm not that good at it. But, but you know, um, but you, but reach out to people who you know have success in that space and say, hey. Mm. Can you, you know, I've got this application. Can you have a look at it and give mm. me just, you know, tell me exactly what you think? Because, you know, there's a lot of this expertise out there in the scene, and and it can be real. You know, it can change your career to mm. to have the right advice at the right time. Mm. Um, and perhaps that's a, a good time for us to wrap it up. Sure. Thanks yeah. so much, so so much for the chat, Ruben. And I think this one could be, you know, a really valuable one actually. <laughs> You know, for all of all, all of um, all of those musicians out there wondering how to, you know, not just make interesting music, but also to mm. get their career rolling, you know, yeah, to, to take some ownership and. <laughs> well, happy to help if anyone yeah. needs some some more of my ramblings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I'll I'll give you a phone call later and, <laughs> and get you to read my next application. And uh... <laughs> all right, talk soon. Thanks, Thank Jay. you. Thanks for tuning into my chat with Ruben Lewis. It was really great to learn a little bit more about the genesis of some of the work that he's been um, presenting, and in particular those two compositions that he put together um, for New North Wales performance a little while back. It was also uh, really helpful for me you know, to delve in into his thinking about uh, making a music career at the present time. And uh, you know, he's someone who's taken a a very different route to me and um, in a lot of ways I think the, uh, the more difficult route where um, he's created all of these different skills that, that support the, uh, the creation of his own work but have also made him uh, a really valuable person to um, other organizations and, um, and you know I'm sure that um, if anyone had questions for Ruben about how they might uh, perhaps begin moving in some of these directions themselves I, I, I'm sure he'd be willing to, to talk to them about that. One other thing that I'll add here is that um, Ruben's actually going to be the presenter of New North's second workshop, which is um, scheduled for a little later in the year on the 29th of October. And in this session, although it's still in the planning phase, um, we're, we're looking at, um, at setting up 
um, Brunswick Mechanics Institute so that musicians can come and actually experiment with different uh, approaches to um, using electronics and effects in their sounds, um, using some of Ruben's equipment and also um, benefiting from his guidance about how you can, um, how you can actually do this in a really um, efficient and economical way. Um, I, I'll be there myself and I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot in that experience and so I encourage you to, to keep an eye on our, uh, on our Facebook, our Instagram or our website for more information about that which will be released over the coming months. Thanks for listening. Step at a time, not looking where I'm going. Perhaps I'm going backwards. Of memories.
see the unseeable tones that creep deeply felt in my nerves, in my in the breath. 